You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, The Coronavirus Check-In and Review, What Have We Learned in Frontline Work Settings? My name is Sarah Kift and I'm your host for today. And I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. And my role with HSABC is to develop and host webinars and um, work with these amazing instructors that we often have on the line. I'm going to run a little poll here just to get a sense of who's on the line this morning. So uh, just tell me what your role is in your organization. Are you a frontline worker? Are you a caseworker, a counselor? Are you a manager, a supervisor? Maybe you work in support staff, food services, cleaning, maintenance, admin, HR, um, or other. And if you chose other, just um, type into the question section and uh, let me know. Good to know we've got some new outreach workers on the line. It's great to have you with us. It's a good place for you to be today. All right, so let's share the results here. So a lot of frontline workers on the line. That's great. And a fair number of managers and supervisors as well. It's great to have you with us. If you have any learning or tips or things that you've been reflecting on, um, this is the place to share those. Um, what's worked for you and what hasn't over this uh, strange season that we've been in. So thank you for everybody who's here today for taking the time out of your busy work schedule to, to join us. All right, so if you haven't joined us before, we are HSABC and we're a provincial member-driven organization and our purpose is to provide training, capacity building and research opportunities. And right now we are all facing interesting and unprecedented challenges as well as a big change to our daily lives. And we're really here to help support you on the front lines however we can. We represent over 230 organizations across BC working to end homelessness. And we just announced the um, the dates for our conference in September. It's going to be the 24th and the 25th. Uh, it's going to be an online format this time. And the subject is going to be health and homelessness. So go to our website and see how you can sign up for that. It's going to be a good time together. All right, here's the best part, introducing you to Corey. So Corey started his nursing career facilitating a bloodborne pathogens program in the Edmonton downtown core. And since that time, he's worked on harm reduction teams. He's coordinated HIV programming in rural Alberta, as well as the Take Home Naloxone Project and supervised consumption services in Medicine Hat. Corey is highly driven and passionate about ethical and evidence-based approaches to public health problems. He has a wealth of experience in both formal and informal education, having acted as an instructor and a coordinator for the practical nursing program at Medicine Hat College. And he moved back to Vancouver Island this year and is a consultant for the Provincial Peer Training Curriculum Project with the Government of British Columbia, as well as being a new clinical lead for AIDS Vancouver Island around a project implementing safe supply. 
He's also spent the last four months on the front lines in homelessness encampments, homeless encampments, as well as being a passionate and effective online and in-person advocate for safe supply and a humane approach to harm reduction in the midst of this crisis. So Corey and I have been doing webinars together since the beginning of the pandemic. And this today is kind of a look back at everything we've learned and things that have changed and just a way forward in, in, in our experience and what we've learned from you on the line and what we've seen on the front lines and how we can carry on and continue to do our jobs well in the midst of continuing uncertainty. So Corey, it's really great to have you back today. Um, I'm really looking forward to this session with you. Thank you very much for having me back. Um, thank you everyone for joining us today and, and thank you for that uh, introduction, Sarah. Has it only been four months? Uh, maybe five. <laughs> I think it's been like maybe maybe four years. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's been a long time. Feels like we've been here forever. 2020 has definitely been the longest year to date. I'm quite certain of that. Um, there's actually a study that that was out from the New York Times about uh, people's perceptions of time during the COVID crisis and how for some it feels like this year is just like blown by. And for others, how it feels like it's probably been one of the one of the longer years that they've experienced and they've actually been able to, like, quantify people's perceptions of it. I want to thank everybody for being here today. Um, like I said, um, I'm not going to spend too much time introducing myself because Sarah did a wonderful job of that. Um, but I do want to make sure, uh, first and foremost, that we acknowledge the land that we're on. There has never really been a more important time than right now to make sure we do land acknowledgements, to make sure that we take stock of the land that we're on and how we got here. The remnants of colonization continues to permeate throughout our society, um, whether you're looking at homeless encampments and the decampment process, whether you're looking at some of the other issues that have been swirling around south of the border, um, colonization is alive and well, and a land acknowledgement will not do enough to rectify some of the harms that have been generated through colonization, but it is a small step towards humility. It is a small step towards making sure that we really acknowledge where we've come from. Uh, so it is with that respect today that I acknowledge the Lekwungen speaking people on whose traditional territory I stand on today, as well as the Songhees, Esquimalt and Wasanic peoples whose historical relationship continue with the land today. I want to talk a little bit for for just a minute about some of the events of 2020. This has been quite a challenging year for for all of us in in many different ways, shapes and forms. Um, some of you may be in this stage right now where um, you've kind of moved on and you're ready to ready to start up what what we would deem our regular activities, our normal lives. Some of you are still quite concerned about what a second wave might look like. Um, some of you are dealing with other issues, some of the some of the collateral damage of COVID, uh, especially in the places that you work in. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge today that if you're in a weird place, if things are still challenging for you, if you're facing new challenges, that that's that's OK, um, because you're not alone in that. We have to respect that people have fears right now um, and that. The reason why we're doing this um, webinar is because um, it's important that people have access to uh, evidence-based education. They have access to the most 
current recommendations and updates from our public health authorities. But it's also important that we just create a space where you're comfortable asking questions because some of you may not be comfortable with the information quite yet. Um, it's important that we don't make assumptions. I was working at the overdose prevention site a couple of weeks ago, and I was just very casually talking about um, how people use gloves. And we'll talk a little bit more about this um, in a little bit, but I was talking about how people have a tendency to put on gloves and then go and do multiple activities while wearing those gloves. And I was very casually just saying like, you know, that's a big problem. That's a big risk for people. And there was an outreach worker who was listening to me talk and she became very upset. And I, I, so I went and talked to her and I, I said, what's going on? And she said, I had no idea. I had no idea that by wearing my gloves and by going door to door, wearing the same gloves that I was potentially increasing risk for transmission. Um, and she was really upset because she felt like she had put her clients at risk. And it dawned on me that as much saturation as we've had about COVID-19, there are still some who have not had uh, an equal or an equitable opportunity to learn some of the things, to learn how to protect themselves and to protect their clients. So that's what this is really about. I want today to be as iterative as possible. I want it to be conversational. Um, and so I want to start off just by asking some of you to, to use the chat window and to let us know what's going on. What are your biggest concerns right now? What are your biggest challenges or your biggest needs? Um, we can help address some of those things even in today's webinar, but we can also use this information to create new webinars, to create new content that best meet the needs that you're experiencing right now. Um, so I'm going to just pause for a moment and, and let Sarah um, do the tech side of, of things. And please feel free to just type into the chat window what your biggest challenge is right now and how you're doing. And only I can see these and I will summarize some of them. But uh, if you want to be anonymous, that's fine, too. Um, this is a place where you can just put your stuff. You know, um, I've been a manager for a long time and a supervisor as well as a frontline worker. And sometimes as a manager, we are responsible for uh, the mood. And so it's hard to express our own fears and stresses when we're looked to for leadership, especially in times of crisis. And um, so if you just need a space to write down some stuff that you're not able to share with your staff, you can do that here. It'll be confidential. Looks like some are having a challenge supporting their clients from a distance, as well as managing their own concerns about uh, the situation while meeting client needs. That's a big one, hey? Just the idea that, you know, we're, we're in an industry where we're taking care of people and trying to alleviate anxiety and give them a better quality of life. And at the same time, uh, there's so much stress. Personally, I feel that, you know, I talk to people all the time and I'm trying to reassure them when I myself am not feeling very reassured about what's going on or I don't have all the information either. So yeah, I think I've, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is the, this is the time where I've witnessed the most amount of burnout and just emotional fatigue compassion fatigue in people around me. Um, 
and it comes from a whole whole number of things. You know, some people are experiencing the the vicarious trauma of seeing people hurt all the time. Some people feeling isolated and not knowing what they can do and feeling powerless to support people because of some of the new recommendations and protocols that have come out related to COVID-19. Some people themselves are afraid of getting sick. Um, and that fear still exists right now, even though we've loosened up on some of our restrictions, some people are still quite concerned about that. Um, so, so I thank you all for sharing that and just know that you are definitely not alone in, in having that experience. Like I said, I want this to be conversational. Uh, if you have something that comes up, if uh, you have a question or an idea, um, please do feel free to type it into the chat window. Um, last time Sarah and I did one of these sessions, we we did it through uh, a different platform, which I'm forgetting the name of it, um, but we could see everybody's faces and we could talk to each other. And uh, we connected to one individual who was working in Souk um, and they were having trouble accessing PPE still. Um, and just through that one connection and, and a bit of a follow-up email, we were able to actually get that individual the, the personal protective equipment that they and their staff needed uh, within a 24-hour turnaround. So please, if you're experiencing some challenges, if there's something that you want to focus on, please feel free to bring that up. So what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, well, we're going to do things a little bit differently than we normally do. Uh, we're going to try to make this through a bit of a narrative and talk about where I've been throughout this process and reflect back on some of the changing recommendations that have happened during this time, including focusing on what the current recommendations are um, for all kinds of things like uh, personal protective equipment, masks, responding to overdose, uh, safe supply, and we'll try to cover all of those um, all of those current recommendations. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the lessons that we've learned. Um, and this will take both a, a macro and an individual perspective to look at some of these lessons. And then we'll talk a little bit about what we can do right now as frontline workers, as people who are directly involved in the care of, of people experiencing homelessness or precarious housing. Um, make no mistake, even if people are loosening restrictions, um, there is still a lot of work to be done and there are still a lot of people who have been left behind because of COVID-19. So I wanna talk a little bit about where I've been and kind of how I got into this uh, and then we'll move into some of the recommendations. So back in February, um, I ended up having to isolate myself because I had experienced symptoms for COVID-19. It was right when things were really starting to happen and people were quite fearful. And I had a lot of downtime while I was self-isolating in my garage. Um, and Sarah actually connected with me and asked if we could put together a bit of a presentation on COVID-19 and how people can protect themselves during this emerging crisis. As I started to do that work um, and, and dug into some of the data and the recommendations, I realized that we were really, really poorly prepared for this crisis. Um, and I got pulled into a couple of different areas to support some outbreak protocols to be developed in overdose prevention sites. Uh, and then I started to work in the homeless encampments. And originally I just showed up there to see what was going on, um, to see what was happening, how people were being treated, what amenities and, and basic needs were available to people who were experiencing homelessness and were being directed to camp in parks. Uh, and it was really shocking. Um, they went seven days without having any clean water and soap to wash their hands. They went 17 days without access to showers. 
they went over 45 days without access to laundry. And this is all during a public health crisis. This is during a viral outbreak where those personal protective mechanisms like hygiene are so, so important. We also started to notice, and this will come up when we talk about lessons learned, that uh, at least here in Vancouver Island and here in British Columbia, um, the collateral impacts of COVID-19 were actually far more impactful than COVID itself. Uh, and that's because we were fortunate. Even though in Canada we have over 101,000 cases, BC was very minimally hit. Uh, and the vast majority of people who were affected by COVID uh, were people who were quite elderly. And so what we actually saw was all of these recommendations were creating even more structural oppressors for people who were made vulnerable to things like overdose, who were made vulnerable to things like mental health concerns, uh, poverty and homelessness. And so what we saw in the camps is we saw a lot of overdose and we saw a change in the drug supply. And we were quite concerned about it ahead of time. We knew that this was coming. People had started to report that they were having different types of overdoses and that overdoses were increasing. Uh, so we could kind of see this car accident happening from quite a while, quite a ways away. Um, and then came check week in April and we had quite a few people overdose in the parks. There was one day where we responded to seven overdoses in an eight hour shift uh, and people were just dropping and you know, this is something that we were aware was going to happen. The drug supply changed. It changed because people no longer had access to their regular dealer. It changed because distribution lines were impacted by border closures. Uh, it changed because of a whole number of reasons. And now that we can look back on this and we can see the statistical reports from uh, the coroner's office of BC, we can see that April and May were tremendously bad months for overdose. Uh, and in fact, in May, we saw 170 people in British Columbia die from overdose. And in Victoria, 22 people uh, in May died from overdose. That was over four times increase from May of 2019. Um, there was four people who passed away from overdose in May of 2019, and there was 21 who passed away um, in, in 2020. So, you know, we spent a lot of time working with different types of advocacy groups. We created different collaborations and we petitioned the government. We wrote open letters. You can see one of them on the screen, the six urgent actions to address inequitable COVID-19 response for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, and we really tried to put this front and center for, for the government to realize that uh, we were putting people at significant risk with these, with these parks. Eventually, we got what we had asked for, but we didn't get it in the way that we had asked for it. And with a lot of this, uh, it's about process over outcomes as well. It's about how we get to where we're trying to get to, not just about where we get to in the end. And we had asked for opportunities for people to be housed. And, and then we got this um, public provincial safety order that was released. And it was to decamp the homeless encampments and to get people into hotels. And while that sounds really great and it sounds really amazing, the way that we did it was quite harmful. The way that it was done was quite um, oppressive for some people. Um, some folks lost the ability to choose. Uh, fences were erected in the encampments to block people from camping in other places. Some people made it onto the list and were able to access hotels. Others were not able to get onto the list. And the lack of available services and supports waiting for them in hotels meant that some people died. Uh, some people died in the process and during the transition. Um, and that certainly 
played a role in, in Victoria's high number of overdoses and, and overdose deaths in May. We continue to do the work now. Um, we've worked on setting up overdose prevention sites and hotels. Uh, we've worked on creating a 10-point harm reduction plan for people who are accessing temporary shelters and hotels. Um, and we continue to hold the system accountable. Right now, we're working on supporting people who were left behind, um, what's going on for folks who are unsheltered and had to move to Beacon Hill Park and had to move to some of the other parks uh, in Victoria because they were ineligible or they missed the cutoff date for the hotels. Uh, and those are folks who continue to be at the most risk because they uh, have the least access to resources. They're the least connected to teams. Uh, and so during this time of extremely toxic drug supply, um, this is the time when we're going to continue to see more people who are impacted by overdose uh, at these high numbers unless we continue to hold decision makers accountable. Now we're working on developing new safe supply models uh, so that people who need a safe alternative to, this, to the illicit street supply have access to it. Um, and we continue to troubleshoot at all levels of government in order to make sure people are as safe and supported as possible during this crisis. But it's certainly been challenging. Um, it's been something that's definitely tested me to my limits. I know there was a point in time where, where I felt like I was nearing burnout, um, especially when we were um, way more concerned that COVID was a possibility. And so, um, you know, I was sleeping in my garage um, and very disconnected from my family. And so I can only imagine that some of you experience similar issues. And so um, just know, like I said, you, you are not alone in this. So what have been some of the recommendations? What have what has changed so much? We need to acknowledge that this has been a very frustrating process for many people, um, you know, trying, especially when you're on the front line, uh, you get new policy updates, you get new procedural updates on the daily. Uh, and it's up to you to try and interpret those those changes and to try to put them into action as quickly as possible. There's been many times, especially when it comes to masks, where people have been frustrated because they feel like they've either been put at risk or they've put their clients at risk uh, because they didn't know what the most up-to-date, what the most recent updates were. Um, and so we just need to acknowledge that. One of them was the fact that um, about halfway through the start of this COVID crisis, uh, there was a new study that was released that potentially said COVID-19 is actually airborne. Um, and this caused a lot of strife. This caused a lot of concern for people um, because that means all of the personal protective equipment and the precautions that we take have to change. This actually caused so much trouble uh, that the World Health Organization took it upon themselves to fact check it. And so uh, first kind of recommendation to talk about is to just acknowledge the fact that COVID-19 continues to be a droplet infection. Uh, which means that you can transmit it if somebody coughs or sneezes on you. You can transmit it if somebody coughs or sneezes into their hands and then touches you and you touch your face. Um, or it can occur if someone coughs or sneezes onto a surface and then you touch that surface and then touch your face. Those are the ways in which COVID-19 can be transmitted, uh, which is why it's so important that we continue to stick to those main core personal protective mechanisms that are so, so important in keeping ourselves safe right now. Uh, frequent hand washing, making sure that you're using soap or water, um, which is the best way to kill the virus. Um, COVID-19 is a virus that is essentially a ball of RNA. 
surrounded in uh, proteins and then held together by grease. And if you use soap and water, you break down that grease, which holds the virus together, and then the virus is no longer viable. If you don't have access to that, you can still use hand sanitizer that's got at least 60% alcohol, uh, but it's important that you're using proper techniques when you're washing your hands. So the use of PPE has been a hugely contested issue. Uh, and so it's really important that we make sure that we acknowledge that. And then we kind of get to the truth behind some of those recommendations. Mask use was definitely something that um, caused a lot of issues for people. Uh, originally, we were told you do not need to wear a mask. At some point, it was actually said by public health leaders that wearing a mask will increase your risk. I know Sarah and I spent a lot of time back and forth speaking with each other and trying to interpret the new recommendations that were mm -hmm. coming out, um, you know, sending each other articles. Well, what about this? You know, and you know, stuff was coming out from different news post media. And we were like, do we trust what that is saying versus our public health authorities? And that's probably just a bit of a microcosm of what a lot of you have been dealing with. At this point in time, uh, recommendations surrounding masks uh, is, is that now you are uh, encouraged, if you if you can, to wear a mask when you're in public. You're encouraged to wear a non-medical mask if you cannot guarantee at least six feet or two meters of separation between you and other people. Um, and so those recommendations are likely going to continue to evolve. You do not need an N95 respirator. Uh, you do not need to use one of those masks. The only reason why someone would need to use an N95 is if they're performing something that's called an aerosol generating medical procedure, an AGMP. Those medical procedures are when people are intubated, if somebody uses a bag valve mask to pump air into them, if you use a pocket valve mask, which generates pressure to push air into the lungs, if you're doing chest compressions, those are all instances in which uh, COVID, which is droplet, can be turned into aerosolized particles. Um, and from my understanding, the recommendation uh, when it comes to responding to overdoses to do none of those types of procedures at this point in time. There definitely are overdose prevention sites and supervised consumption services that are still using bag valve masks, but they have properly equipped their staff with N95 respirators and gowns and eye protection. But here on the island, um, everybody is staying away from using any of those aerosol generating medical procedures. I put this, and I've alluded to the story, I put this image here about the absolutely no gloves allowed in store uh, because I want to make sure that we're being really clear about some of the use of personal protective equipment. And one of them is about gloves. There is no such thing as a self-cleaning glove. I see a lot of people who are walking around during their outreach shift or going person to person who are wearing the same pair of gloves the entire time, um, this is actually something that increases risk. So you need to be really mindful of the fact that these gloves are single use only. You have to wash your hands before putting them on. You have to do what you need to do with that one action, then remove the gloves and wash your hands again. If you were wearing gloves and you were going person to person, then you could potentially be carrying the virus from one person to another. It can be an increased risk factor for transmission. COVID-19 lives on the surface of objects for between 12 to 24 hours. Uh, those are called fomites when they live on a surface. So you can actually carry those fomites from one area to another, from one person to another, if you're reusing your gloves or if you're using gloves for an extended period of time. It, you know, Corey, it it's so 
just personally, I find all the PPE stuff really hard to wrap my brain around because, you know, I go to the grocery store and the clerk is wearing gloves, but I know that they've been wearing that same pair of gloves probably for most of their shift. So it's like, for me, I try to think about in my own practice, what's the appearance of safety versus actual evidence-based safety. Um, and uh, yeah, those are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really challenging. You know, you like you go into a store and you see this complete dichotomy because in one end you see this person walking through and they're wearing an N95 mask. They've got gloves and they've got goggles on. And you're like, well, that's a bit over the top. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you don't you don't need to be wearing that. We need to conserve those N95 masks for, you know, people who are working in the medical field who are actually at risk of aerosolized particles. But then on the flip side of it, you see a whole cohort of people who are not taking any of this seriously uh, and and yeah. who who are almost willfully ignoring the advice of our public health professions. And you're stuck in the middle saying, like, well, how how do I take this seriously? Right. And how do I make sure I protect myself? But how do I also not fall into this pit of fear that keeps me from doing anything at this point in time? Mm-hmm. There will be a second wave of COVID-19. Uh, we've already started to see some increases in countries that have reduced their lockdown measures. It takes about two to 14 days for symptoms to develop. And so it's quite possible that before the summer is over, we start to see uh, the resurgence of, of increasing cases in Canada. Um, and like I said, we were really lucky in British Columbia. It wasn't, you know, it's great that we put together all of these um, protective mechanisms and, and that we did a really good job to flatten the curve. But a lot of the reason why we flattened the curve so well is is, is sheer luck. Um, you, for, for those of you who are unaware, British Columbia has their spring break two weeks later than the rest of the country. Um, and so we didn't have the same level of people returning from international travel uh, that many of the other provinces did. Um, where I came from before I moved back to British Columbia is a small town in southern Alberta called Brooks. Uh, and Brooks has been recently made famous because of COVID-19. Uh, they have a meatpacking plant there and they had over a thousand cases in the city of less than 9,000 people. Um, and so it's a very real possibility that this can happen almost anywhere. And in fact, the more rural or remote you get, the more dangerous an outbreak of COVID-19 is because the fewer resources you have to access, the fewer testing is available. Uh, And so this is still a very real possibility. And if you take anything away from today is that we need to continue to be diligent. Uh, We need to keep reminding each other that we are still in a pandemic. It has not ended. In fact, the numbers are increasing more so globally than we've seen in a very long time. This is called the third phase of the virus, third phase of the pandemic. And this is where uh, developing and third world countries start to really be hit hard by these um, by, by the virus. Um, it started out, you know, it had its origin point and then it hit kind of the developed nations because that's where a lot of the traveling uh, international travel occurs. And now we're going to start to see it really surge in places where they don't have access to protective mechanisms, where they don't have strong public health systems. Uh, And we're going to continue to see COVID in different iterations for quite some time. There's quite a few doom and gloom uh, predictions that have happened out there. There's uh, statisticians and epidemiologists who do modeling for the disease. Uh, There are some believe that COVID-19 may never go away and it may become just another part of our flu season. 
Um, and there's others who believe that the second wave will be worse than the first wave. From a historical context, the second wave in a pandemic is usually worse than the first wave. Uh, and all you really need to do is look at the 1918 Spanish flu to realize that uh, we could have just seen the tip of the iceberg when it came to this. Now, I don't say these things in order to scare people, um, but I do want to make sure that we, we really are practicing these precautions and we're doing our due diligence um, until we're for sure out of this, because we might just be in a bit of a lull right now. I posted this um, image here about mask usage because it kind of just properly communicates what the benefits of masks are. Um, we wear masks when we're working because we work in an overdose prevention site. We work in a quote unquote shelter setting. Uh, and the recommendations are that if you cannot guarantee six feet of separation or two meters that you should always be wearing a mask. Um, and the main reason for that is because you're actually doing your best to protect other people from yourself. There is a certain percentage of people who are asymptomatic but can still transmit the virus to other people before they develop symptoms, or maybe they don't even develop symptoms at all. And so that's why we wear a mask. We make sure that we can create a physical barrier so that we protect ourselves from our clients. Uh, and that's usually the best way to communicate that to people as well. Um, you don't want to scare them and make them feel like they're a potential risk to you. Uh, you want to make sure that they know that this is something you're doing to protect them. There is an order of operations. There is a correct way to put on and take off a mask. Uh, for some reason in healthcare, we fancy up the language and we call putting on donning and we call taking off doffing, but you can also just say putting on and taking off. Um, you need to make sure when you're putting on your PPE, when you're using your PPE, you need to think about the number of opportunities you have to touch your face with potential contaminants. And so if you're putting things on, if you're putting on your, your PPE to start your day, the first thing that you do, the first thing that you always do is to start with hand hygiene. Then you put on your mask. Then you put on your eye protection. And the last thing you put on is your gloves. When you're taking things off, you want to make sure you remove your gloves first. Then you perform hand hygiene. Then you put, take off your eye protection. Then you take off your mask and you do hand hygiene once again. And you can see when you're doing that, that you're limiting the amount of times that dirty hands will touch your face, because that is the number one time that you will potentially transmit the virus to yourself. So between all of these mixed messages, we finally got some really strong clarification. Uh, we got some really strong protocols that came out um, from the tireless work of, of our public health professionals here in British Columbia. I'll preface this by saying I always try to take data from the most local source, from the most local public health source. So, and, and everybody should try to practice that as well. When it comes to recommendations, stay local and then broaden yourself up, but always keep it within the realm of public health professionals. Uh, so this came from Vancouver Coastal Health. Um, and this is linked in that resource handout that Sarah alluded to. It's got a whole bunch of links to different resources that you can make use of. Uh, and this is their uh, PPE recommendations for people working in community care. I've posted the one about PPE recommendations for overdose prevention sites, but there's also one specific about shelter settings. And essentially what this is telling us uh, is that if you can't guarantee social distancing, then you should be wearing mask and eye protection. If you're going to be doing any cleaning, if you're going to do any direct care, uh, you should be wearing your gloves for that specific activity. 
Um, and so what they're saying is you can actually put on your mask and your eye protection at the start of your shift. And unless it becomes soiled or dirty or wet, uh, you can continue to wear those throughout the entire shift. This is challenging for people uh, and for a number of reasons, especially because if you wear glasses, you could fog up your glasses and then you end up touching your face. So if you're wearing a mask, it's really important uh, that you be very cognizant of the amount of times that you adjust that mask, the amount of times that you move things around or manipulate your, your eye protection, because those are all times where you could touch your face and you could potentially transmit the virus. Health Canada has actually released a how to safely use a non-medical and a medical mask or face covering. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, um, you know, so making sure um, you don't use multiple masks at the same time. Make sure that your mask isn't loose. Uh, so if you see someone and they've got their mask underneath their nose, that is an ineffective use of a mask. That's an actual increased risk for it, that you shouldn't be adjusting it as often. Uh, and that you make sure that if you do plan to touch your face, even to adjust your mask, that you're washing your hands first. Uh, it's a really great infographic. And at the end of this, I will send it to, to Sarah to include to our list of resources. Yeah, that's quite comprehensive. I was taking a closer look at it. It's very helpful. <laughs> the do's and don'ts? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it basically covers all of the things that I see people wearing masks in grocery stores doing. Uh, you know, the, they'll, <laughs> yeah. they'll pull their mask down so that they can talk to someone um, and, and they're within close proximity to that person. They'll pull it underneath their chin so they can talk on the phone. They'll pull it up over their head so they can take a bite out of something. All of those times that you're moving that mask above and below your eyes, which is a main portal of entry for infection, uh, that's a potential risk factor for transmitting the virus. I was in a, a store the other day and the clerk was behind plexiglass, but they were wearing a mask below their nose. <laughs> That's basically like if you ever went to a buffet, which I, I don't know if buffets will ever be a thing again. Probably not. Buffet and like the, you see the person in front of you put their head under the sneeze guard so they can get a good look at everything. And mm -hmm. you're like, well, that sneeze guard is obsolete now. Um, yeah. There's a high number of available resources now for COVID-19 precautions and overdose response. This used to be one of the most challenging things for people um, in order to, to get clear direction on. It was not always very clear. And it's important to acknowledge that these overdose response steps that I'm going to talk about today, um, they are for places that I'm familiar working in. They're places in Victoria. Um, it's important to know that any recommendation I give you, you have to weigh with your institution's policies and procedures. Uh, you might work at an overdose prevention site that still uses a bag valve mask, in which case the recommendations are completely different for those instances. This is based off of what the evidence has shown us. This is based off of recommendations from the BC Centre for Disease Control. Um, but like I said, it's really important that you make sure you're always checking in with your agency policy and procedures um, and, and weighing these recommendations with what your work is telling you to do. First, we have to review how COVID-19 is spread. Like I said, it is droplets. Uh, there are times when droplets can become airborne. That's through aerosol generating medical procedures. And so we don't do any of those aerosolizing generating medical procedures. The steps now, um, the steps now in order to respond to overdose um, are a little bit more simplified. And a lot of organizations are just being told to 
uh, immediately administer naloxone and call 911. You can do more than that, of course, but some organizations are skipping straight to calling 911 because they don't want to have any kind of risk during this time. But essentially what you're going to be doing, uh, you of course want to make sure that you're wearing your appropriate PPE. And so that would be gloves and eye protection. Uh, And then if you are the second responder, so the person who's not giving breaths, you want to make sure that you're wearing a medical mask, eye protection and gloves. They also recommend using gowns. Some organizations have access to gowns. Some organizations do not have access to gowns. Um, And so that's really important that if you don't, if you're not using gowns, that when you go home, you make sure that your clothes go right into the washing machine uh, because you could potentially have COVID. um, uh, You could have viral particles on your clothing. Um, So essentially what we're saying to people now, what we're doing in our place of work um, is that you can give breaths Uh, start with a dose of naloxone uh, and we give a double dose uh, to start. So we give 0.8 milligrams of naloxone. And if you're going to give breaths, you're giving breaths through the take-home naloxone kit face shield. And this is the recommendations from BCCDC is that the take-home naloxone kit face shields, those little plastic masks that come inside every single kit, uh, they are the current safest way to give breaths to someone. And the reason for that is because, first of all, the mask comes with a bit of a face shield that goes over top of someone's face, so they're not going to sneeze or cough and and anything's going to come onto you. But the second part is that the mouthpiece has a one-way valve inside of it, so your air will go into that individual, uh, but if they cough or or if the air comes back out when they're breathing out, uh, the one-way valve will not let it come back into you. So that is, and I'm saying the safest, not the safe way. Uh, and the reason for that is, is because um, there's still some discrepancies in the evidence about how much this actually protects the person that you're giving breaths to. So if I am an asymptomatic carrier and I give breaths to someone using the naloxone face shield, it's potential that I could contaminate that individual. I could transmit the virus to them. Uh, so the recommendations, the the mantra that's being echoed by BCCDC is if you have to give breaths, the naloxone kit face shield is the safest way to do so. You can also provide oxygen and supplemental oxygen to someone uh, if they're breathing on their own and it's a mild overdose. But you have to use a, a simple mask and you also have to make sure that it's less than six to 10 liters per minute when you're providing that oxygen to the person. A lot of organizations use non-rebreather masks, and those non-rebreather masks generate pressure, and they're considered one of those aerosol-generating medical procedures, especially if you're using high-flow oxygen. Now, one of the most challenging parts of giving respirations right now and using that take-home naloxone kit face shield is airways. A lot of us are used to using bag valve masks. A lot of us are used to using pocket valve masks. Those are easy ways to give air to people because when you create a seal around their nose and their mouth and you force air in, you generate pressure and the air has to get into their lungs. Even if you don't have a perfectly positioned airway, the air will still find its way in there. When you're using the take-home naloxone kit face shield, it doesn't generate that pressure. And so if somebody is hyperextended or flexed, Uh, their airway could be pinched off and you will have a really hard time getting breaths. So for the managers and supervisors that are on the line, if you haven't gone through this with your staff, if you haven't made sure that people are comfortable doing this, I really recommend doing it. Um, Don't make assumptions. I've worked with a lot of people who have responded to a bunch of overdoses 
uh, and they were not comfortable saying that they, you know, weren't familiar with using the face shield until we started doing the demonstrations. And then they came up afterwards and said, you know what, I'm really grateful that we did that um, because it turns out that I wasn't as familiar with it as I thought I was. Some of the other emerging recommendations that have come out during this process have been access to safe supply. And I've alluded to this a couple of times. Um, both of these infographics are available on the HSABC resource uh, section of their webpage. And essentially what safe supply is, is a safe prescribed alternative to the illicit drugs that people are taking on the streets. There are safe supply options available for people who use opioids, street fentanyl, uh, people who use stimulants, people who drink. Um, benzos, and even tobacco. It's essentially a replacement therapy with something that is not adulterated with benzodiazepines and high concentrations of fentanyl. When the recommendations, when the dual mitigation guidelines came out from the government, everybody thought that this was going to be something that was going to be really accessible and it was going to make a very big impact. What we actually found out is out of the 20,000 people who are currently consuming and purchasing illicit fentanyl in British Columbia, about 7.5% of people have actually had access to safe supply. So clearly there's a big issue here. One of the ones that we encountered early on um, is that there is some unintentional gatekeeping happening from prescribers. And I say unintentional because this isn't something that they chose to be um, but prescribers became the gatekeepers. And these recommendations were very vague. They were very generalized, uh, and it left it up to the interpretation of every individual prescriber. So what we saw was some prescribers who were really, really uncomfortable with prescribing safe supply. What we saw is that we had some prescribers who, from an ideological standpoint, didn't believe in safe supply. And so their patients were almost held hostage by them because they weren't going to provide that prescription. When we were working in the encampments, when the guidelines came out, um, we, we were really quick to respond and we started reaching out to physicians and we started to get people in the homeless encampments on safe supply right away. In our first week, we had 15 people on safe supply and it seemed like we were just rolling through it and things were going to be quite simple. Then we saw a little bit of blowback happen. Um, because what we found out is that doctors don't really like it when they when when other doctors prescribe for their patients. And so some people who had a regular physician uh, had all of their meds cut off by their regular physician when they found out that they had access safe supply. And what that did is it actually generated even more harms for people who are at risk for overdose. And so clearly we needed to make some changes. Uh, we continue to work with a large group of prescribers. Um, in Victoria, we were very benefited by the fact that a group of prescribers came together and created an on-call system for the encampments and the hotels. Uh, and we continue to troubleshoot on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's not enough. And we need to work on increasing accessibility for safe supply. We need to continue advocating for increased accessibility to safe supply. And we need to continue to work on demedicalizing it so that there's more low barrier versions available so that people can have access to a medication that can help prevent them die from overdose. Um, and that's what this is all about. The nine reasons to support safe supply is something I put together uh, so that people can have a little bit of a better understanding of all of the benefits of safe supply. Um, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about what that is. And so it's really important that you make sure that you educate yourself if you're unfamiliar on the topic. Um, and maybe, hinting at Sarah, maybe there might be an opportunity for us to do um, a webinar specifically on safe supply in the near future, if that's of interest to people. Sounds good to me. <laughs>
Testing is another one of those recurring issues. Um, when we started out, uh, people who were experiencing homelessness and precarious housing were not made a priority for testing and screening. Um, it was really concerning because we knew for a fact that if this hit our population, especially in the homeless encampments or in the hotels, that we would have seen widespread transmission and we would have seen people with compromised immune systems or compromised lungs or cardiac systems. They would have been really affected by COVID-19. We were fortunate that we didn't see that happen. Um, but again, it was mostly because of luck. As time progressed and people you know, brought this issue to light more and more, uh, the provincial government changed some of their testing requirements and changed some of their testing eligibility criteria, and they made homeless populations a priority population for testing. It is really important right now that we continue to push for testing and screening. We've seen outbreaks happen in homeless shelters in downtown Toronto. We've seen outbreaks happen in homeless shelters in New York City. We've seen outbreaks happen in Alpha House in Calgary and in the DI, which is North America's largest drop-in center. And so it definitely can hit our population and we need to be really vigilant about watching out for, for symptoms. The top three symptoms for COVID-19 that you should be screening for still are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Of course, some of us feel like we're a bit of a broken record because we're continuously talking about this, but I cannot stress enough that people have forgotten this already. I was working in the hotels and I observed a worker talking to one of the clients and the client said, oh man, I've been really sick lately. And the worker was like, oh yeah. And then the, the client said, yeah, you know, I've been coughing a lot. I feel really hot. Do you think I have a fever? And the, the worker was like, I don't know, man, that sounds terrible. And then they parted ways. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> if this was two months ago, we would have had someone in to test them right away. We would have isolated them in their room. We would have got them access to safe supply. What changed? Getting them into a hotel did not suddenly eliminate the risk. If anything, moving them from an open air encampment into places where it's more confined and there's more surfaces for people to cough and sneeze on would actually increase risk of transmission. And so we need to keep watching out for this because it's very possible that we're going to see a second wave. And it's very likely that maybe British Columbia might be impacted by some, in some of the ways that other areas have been. When in doubt, uh, continue to access and continue to check in with your local public health authority. It's really important that we continue to monitor some of the trends, some of the new cases that are being reported. There already has been a little bit of an increase in cases in British Columbia, and we need to keep a really close eye on this. If your city, municipality, local area doesn't have its own dedicated COVID team, um, like in, in Victoria, we have the COAT team, which is the COVID outreach and assessment team. Uh, in, in Vancouver, they have the COVID assessment team and the COVID outreach team, the CAT and the COAT teams. Um, if you're in an area that doesn't have access to those, then you should be leaning on your public health authority to provide directions if you encounter someone who's symptomatic so that you can get them access to testing right away. So now I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the some of the more intangible pieces of, of this crisis and some of the lessons that we've learned and some of the tips and tricks that I can impart onto all of you based off of my learning. I would never say that uh, the approach that we've taken in Victoria was perfect, nor has my approach been. It's had to have been very iterative, learning our mistakes as we make it and making adjustments as we go. So I hope that people find this uh, useful. 
and please feel free to to type into the chat if you have a specific question uh, if there's something that I say that really triggers your mind that you want to talk about um, please do feel free to jump in so here are some of the lessons that we've learned first Public health is authoritative by nature, but even more so in a pandemic. We've seen a lot of public health, uh, a lot of decisions that have been made related to people who are marginalized that generated a lot of harms and they were made under the guise of public health. And so it's important that we continue to hold our system accountable. It's important that we continue to check on some of these things. Uh, we've seen a lot of broad sweeping recommendations come in that don't necessarily fit uh, within the local context of serving people who, who are homeless or experiencing homelessness. And so it's really important that we continue to hold our system accountable. Some of the decisions that were made um, in the decampment process when it came to getting people out of Topaz, Pandora, and Oppenheimer were made under the guise of public health. It's really important that we support people and get them access to housing. Uh, but they were also done through the lens of enforcement. And so when we were asking for access to hotels, when we were asking for people to get more access to supports during the COVID crisis, uh, we were asking for it to be done under the guise of health, that people were going to be offered housing, that we were going to engage and consult with them to find out what they needed. But instead, we ended up with a provincial safety order. And the result was fences were put up, people felt more isolated, people died during the transition. And a lot of this was done not because of COVID risk, but because people were concerned about the state of trees and grass in the parks. People were concerned about public visibility of poverty and homelessness. And so we, we can't learn from this crisis unless we actually take stock in what we did wrong. And this is definitely one of the things that we did wrong. Another one of the lessons that we learned is that COVID-19 precautions, at least in BC, ended up being more harmful to homeless individuals than COVID itself. Uh, we saw a surge in overdose deaths, and, and there's no doubt that some of the uh, isolation and quarantining procedures that came out of the COVID crisis definitely contributed to the rise in deaths. There is an intrinsic link between isolation and overdose death. And what this crisis did, what the recommendations from this crisis did, is it forced people to be isolated. And also, to um, even just the impact on people not being able to access the services that help them to maintain um, their quality of life, from meals to places to be that aren't policed or monetized, um, like community centers, libraries, uh, drop-in programs, and as oh, well, yeah. connection to community. Um, you know, we somebody talked at the beginning about how hard it is to support your clients remotely, and that's been a big concern in, in our sector um, because we are all, I mean, a lot of places shut down and a lot of services were um, removed because of the risk, but they have caused other uh, issues among uh, the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, and it's really it's it's really tragic. You know, we're we're still working on the advocacy side of things, and we're still trying to um, support people who are left unsheltered because of this crisis. And and one of the scariest parts about all of this is that a lot of the world has resumed its regular daily activities, but a lot of these low barrier, low threshold services have not opened up yet again. Mm -hmm. Or they've opened up and they've opened up with big restrictions and, and disruptions in their regular service. 
there's people who rely on on those services, whether it's hot meals, whether it's a connection to, to counseling or just peer support, uh, and they continue to slip through the cracks. And so, you know, we we will not understand the full impacts of COVID-19, probably at least until we're a year out of this crisis. But what we're seeing right now is that a lot of people have slipped through the cracks and a lot of people continue to be unsupported and the risk remains extremely high for them. And, you know, another thing that um, I've just been thinking about lately that I that I think is important to continue to advocate for is that we often have assumptions around people who have access to communications, whether it's internet or phone, and that through that they're able to access the services they need. But, um, you know, with the closure of libraries and other drop-in spaces, a lot of people who are homeless do not have any access to computer, um, phone or internet um resources. And so it's important as agencies to remember that a lot of the work we're doing um, has to be done in person, despite the risk or not has to be done in person, but we need to make sure that our communication channels are continuing in real time as well as virtually, because it's easy to forget that not everybody has access to the internet or a phone number, which is sort of a basic way that our society uses to communicate important information and to get ID and to do all of those, you know, pieces, right? Yeah. Access to telecommunication is almost becoming another, another human right itself. Um, And it was really interesting. uh, The province recently announced um, the lifeguard app, um, which is an app that you can use and you can activate it when you're going to use drugs. Uh, and and if you don't respond within 15 minutes, they send EMS. It's kind of like a virtual overdose prevention service. And we were like, well, that's great. <laughs> a lot of people we work with don't have phones. Or right? and they can't charge their phone, right? Or they can't charge their phone or yeah. they don't have access to put minutes on their phone. Uh, and so we worked with a... One of the groups that I work with is is called Vicar, the, the Victoria Inner City COVID Response Team, and it's a group of physicians. Uh, and they were able to actually um, problem solve and get people who were in hotels access to phones uh, with 10 minutes of calling on each of the phones. And they preloaded the lifeguard app onto it, um, which was really great. But again, those are for people who have already good connections to services. The people who are in hotels have access to medical care. They have access to overdose prevention services. They have people checking on them regularly. But the folks who were left unsheltered after the decampment process continue to be the ones who get the least amount of access to services and resources. Uh, and so there still hasn't been equity in our ability to support people who are at risk for overdose. One of the other things that we learned uh, really quickly is that the presence of best practice guidelines does not necessarily mean that they will be used. Uh, And so when the like I said, when the dual mitigation guidelines came up for safe supply, we were really excited. Um, But it it turned out that it did not translate to uh, broad access to safe supply for people who are at risk of overdose. It actually really highlighted how many barriers we have in our current system when it comes to having a timely uh, response to people who are at risk of overdose. We also received this really great national protocol for homeless encampments in Canada um, right before the decampment process happened. And I've gone through this a couple of times in different webinars. We've been really fortunate to have 
Elaine Gosvick come on and talk about uh, the decampment process in LA compared to the decampment process in Victoria. And I've referred back to these documents quite a bit because they tell us they provide a roadmap for how we should support people in homeless encampments. But the reality is the presence of these of this roadmap of the presence of this protocol didn't actually change the decision making process the way that we wanted it to. Barriers were still put up, which was one of the main recommendations that came out of this protocol was to not use barriers to displace people and to control their movements. There's echoes of colonization in both of those things. Uh, and yet that still happened. There's recommendations that came from this protocol that you should not be displacing a person if it's going to worsen or exacerbate their homelessness. But we saw people decamped from parks where there were supports and told to go to parks where there was no supports. And so this we need to continue to reflect on these protocols. We need to continue to use them to hold decision makers accountable. But it's really important to acknowledge that it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to change the way that you want them to. We also learned very quickly in the COVID crisis that people love a conspiracy. Um, and so my, my lesson to you all is to go on to the World Health Organization website and take the brief little course that they put together called How to Spot Fraudulent Data um, and to just learn about how to really sift through the evidence to make sure that you're finding the stuff that is coming from our public health leaders, coming from our experts, coming from studies and research, uh, not coming from people on Facebook or Twitter scientists, um, because all of those myths and misconceptions and conspiracies, they actually generate more harms because they cause people to act out of fear. Uh, and that usually ends up being something that has more collateral damage associated with it. One of the other things that we learned really quickly uh, is that housing is a protective factor in preventing COVID-19. It's a preventive factor in a whole host of other negative health outcomes that can happen to people. And if housing is frontline protection, then housing has to be a human right. And if housing is a human right, then it is something that we should all have access to. Um, and we have not struck that balance here in British Columbia. Um, even in Victoria alone, we celebrated 680 plus people being brought into hotels. Uh, but the recent point in time count for people who are homeless uh, meant that there was about 1,500 people in, in Victoria uh, who were homeless and about half of them who were unsheltered. And what that means is there's a tremendous amount of people who were left behind in this crisis. There are folks who are camping on street sides. There's folks who are camping in Rock Bay Landing, in Stadacona, and Beacon Hill Park. And they weren't even included in the original list to get people into hotels. One of the other things we learned really quickly in this crisis is that self-quarantining heroism is a matter of classism. Uh, we really celebrated the fact that we were able to stay at home. And for those of you who had to stay at home and to protect yourselves and to protect your family, that's really important that you did that. But we have to acknowledge that the world continued outside of that. And a lot of people experienced a lot of harms because they weren't able to engage in those protective factors like the rest of us. And of course, the last thing that we've learned, and I'm sure we've learned this time and time again, but it's we as a society are slow learners. We have seen time and time again in pandemics historically where the second wave is the most damaging and widespread impact during that time. Um, but we very quickly saw people who were protesting to end the lockdown because they wanted to go back outside and they didn't feel impacted by it. We saw an elected official in Alberta say, 
the majority of people who are dying from this virus are 84 years old and the average life expectancy in Alberta is 83. So why are we really worried? And that's really troublesome because we are not understanding that if we're going to say we're all in this together, we actually need to make sure that we all are in this together. What we really learned too is that we have a habit of romanticizing one crisis uh, while completely neglecting another. I put together this infographic uh, comparing back in April, comparing the two crises in British Columbia, COVID-19 and overdose. And it's about really taking stock of how efforts to respond to both public health crises in BC differ and what the outcomes of those efforts were. So with COVID-19, we get minimum weekly reporting. It's actually daily reporting that we get updates. We get notifications on where the person was that passed away and how deeply saddened we are that we lost another British Columbian uh, to COVID-19. So overdose, we get monthly reports uh, and they're mostly presented as, as anonymous numbers on a, on a report. When it comes to messaging, we've heard repeatedly from our decision makers that we're all in this together. We have to do our part. Uh, when it comes to overdose, we actually had our, our provincial medical officer of health say, now we're facing a global pandemic on top of a fentanyl poisoning crisis. People are scared and they feel alone. We acknowledge that not everybody was in this together. When it came to investment, British Columbia poured $5 billion in two months in order to support COVID-19 responses. And in British Columbia, we get around $9 million over that two-month period to respond to overdose. And what are the responses? Well. By April of 2020, uh, we had lost 161 people in 2020 to COVID, uh, and we lost 377 people in that same time frame to overdose. That was before May. And what we've really seen in May is that uh, the overdose crisis will continue to persist after COVID-19, but it has surged in a way that we have not seen uh, before. In May of 2020, we lost 170 people to overdose. And the total amount of people by that same date that we had lost to COVID was 167. So in one month, we eclipsed the number of deaths from COVID-19 with overdose. At this point, we have recorded 547 deaths related to overdose. And you are four times more likely in British Columbia to die of overdose than you are of COVID-19. Yet we still see a discrepancy in the response. And what that tells us is that not all crises are treated the same. And it really comes down to who is impacted by the crisis that generates a lot of the response. So what can you do about it? Well, there's quite a bit that people can do. There's quite a bit that we can continue to do, both when it comes to COVID and it comes to overdose. Really, we need to continue to be prepared. Like I said, historically, second waves are far worse than the first one. So learn from this first experience and start planning for the next. Use the Vancouver Coastal Health Pandemic Response Checklist and start to make sure that you're ready for the second wave. Stay vigilant, practice hand hygiene, social distancing, cough etiquette, self-quarantine if you're sick. Make sure you're doing the cleaning and disinfecting and that you're really acting right now that we've learned from this and that we can continue to implement these protocols uh, wherever we are and whatever the new crisis might be. What can frontline staff do? Uh, wash your hands and don't touch your face. Yeah, of course. Um, but get tested. Get clients tested. We are in the stage right now where contact tracing is the most important thing to do. We want to make sure that if we have a new surge in cases, if we have a new case, that we can track the clients down, we can do contact tracing, and we can eliminate, we can remove one of the links in the chain of infection. 
make sure that you acknowledge the fact that you are not powerless in your advocacy. You can continue to push for, um, you know, different recommendations to come out. You can continue to push uh, for lower barrier, safe supply. You can continue to encourage for people having access to services that they are entitled to. Uh, do not assume wherever you are, if you're frontline management, that you are powerless. One of the most powerful things that I had um, when, when it came to advocating during this time is that I was present. I was an observer. I sat on a lot of phone calls. I sat on a lot of committees um, where, where people were saying, well, we heard everything's fine there. And I was actually able to say, actually, no, I'm, re- I'm here right now and this is what's happening. And being able to be that person who can translate what's happening on the ground to decision makers is a very powerful tool that we have. And lastly, what else can we do? Um, we'll rest when you can. We are not done. Uh, so do make sure that you're continuing to focus on self-care. You're continuing to focus on ways that you can, um, you know, enjoy parts of life um, because we're going to get to a place where things get worse again. Uh, and it's important that we make sure that we're rested and ready for it. One of the other things that you can do, uh, I'm trying to coin this new phrase, but you can practice public health harm reduction. And what that means is you can take all of these high level recommendations that don't really speak to the local setting that you have, and you can try to adapt them and adopt them so that they best meet the needs of where you're at. I've seen countless people say like, these recommendations are too much. What what can I do? And so I try to tell them like, you need to do your very best to apply these recommendations to where you're at and do the most amount of good while generating the least amount of harms with your actions. And that's what we really need to do. Lastly, we need to make sure that we're listening to people with lived and living experience. Uh, It's important to talk to your clients and ask them what's working for them and what's not working. It's important to make sure that they're part of the decision-making process and that they're communicated to when new changes are happening. There's been so many changes and alterations uh, in, in services that are available. It's very confusing to people who are trying to access services. So make sure you have an open line of communication and that they're part of that process, not just being people who are trying to guess what's open and what's closed the next day. So I hope you found this useful. I want to make sure that, like I said, we're continuing to adapt our process. So this is my email address, info at westsideharmreduction.com. Please feel free to contact if you have questions. Please feel free to um, make suggestions if there's something else that you want to learn about that we've missed. We don't pretend to have all of the answers, but we know how to find them. And so if there's something else that you're looking for, if there's some other form of education that will really benefit you or your organization, please feel free to let us know. We have a number of resources, like Sarah said, that are available to you today. Uh, Please make sure that you check them out. Um, I've included the Towards the Heart Overdose and COVID-19 Response Sheet. reason why I've included that um, is because it's written by and for people with lived and living experience. And so it has a lot of really great hands-on tips and tricks, including what you do in case you need to give chest compressions to someone, because we know that's an aerosolizing generating medical procedure. Um, So please, please give those a check out. And there's a whole pile of other resources that are available through the HSABC website. Uh, Go to their resource section. Sarah's done a great job putting together all of these things so that we have access to the most relevant and up-to-date resources. I'm waiting to see how many pages of references we have now after four months of doing this. Just two. (laughs) It's good. It's good. You know, um, 
we've got about 15 minutes in our time allotted here. And so I want to make space for questions. You know, this is a good opportunity for you to talk directly with Corey about what's going on for you in your workplace. And if he has any thoughts or problem solving that could help you, um, or if there's anything that we've missed, uh, any learning that you've experienced that has actually enabled you to help your clients. Um, so while people are just formulating those questions, I just want to say thank you to Corey. Um, it's interesting. We are moving into a new phase, even in our training, uh, but it's been quite the ride the last five months, <laughs> four months. And um, you've consistently showed up and brought uh, evidence-based, uh, real-time practical advice and information, as well as your stories and your experience of what you've learned. Um, and, you know, I might have posted these infographics, but you made them and they're really amazing and easy to follow. So I just want to say thank you, Corey, for all your hard work with us in this season. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate the opportunity. I think we might have uh, cussed into a situation soon where um, people have reached that COVID saturation. We've been saying that for about a couple of months now. But, uh, you know, when I talk to people, I, I can really see that they have started to tune out a little bit of of uh covid related issues um it's unfortunate because i i'm like i said it's the writing is on the wall that we are going to see um we are going to see a second wave um but it might be that um people have just had enough of it for now you know and but it's really important that we continue to make space um because for every person that feels like they've reached covid saturation uh, there's other people who are still hungry for information. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I really appreciate this opportunity and, and I really appreciate the work that HSABC has done over the last four months in order to get all of you access to information and, and education. Um, I've seen, I work with a couple of different collaborations, uh, some in Alberta and some in BC. I've seen others try to put together um, some, some education and some webinars, um, but I haven't seen this degree of, of you know, repetition and and making sure that you're constantly adapting your process to meet the needs of the people who are doing this really important work. So I, I do have to tip my hat off to HSABC as well. You know, um, I was just thinking about the last thing that you said, or one of the last things, and that was lived and living experience is really important. Um, and so I just want to kind of reflect a little bit on that as well as some of the key takeaways I've taken from these five months of COVID training. Um, what we do know is that we're not out of this and it's going to continue to happen, but now we are prepared in some ways. And I think one of the biggest things that we can do is connect again with the people we are serving and helping and working with and find out what's working for them and what isn't because we've seen time and time again, uh, you know, orders, protocols, ways of clearing things, you know, in the camps, ways of implementing things um, without actually measuring the impact it's having on the people that are needing the services. And so I just would, you know, my personal encouragement to you, especially to our managers and supervisors on the line is um, it's hard to make space for reflection in this sector because everything is an emergency all the time, uh, even when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. But I think 
if there's one thing that you can do moving forward to ensure that your programming, uh, your sites, staff, the services you provide continue to be effective and helpful is to actually make time to consult uh, with your clients and with the people that are uh, accessing your services because they'll tell you. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm going to be very frank. You know, when I worked in the downtown east side, uh, people told me what they thought and they didn't care how I felt about it and they didn't care about offending me. You know, that's actually a great strength. That's actually a a, a prized resource to have a, a conversation with a community of people who say what they think um, and tell you when things aren't working. Uh, maybe yell at you, <laughs> maybe in ways that aren't, you know, considered polite, but they're still telling you something important. And so to lean into that, um, to lean into that resistance, to, to, to find out why it's hard for people um, to wear a mask or why it's hard for them to wait in a line, like all of these things, because then that way you can adjust because when things get hard again, maybe they've never stopped being hard, but you'll actually have um, a relationship um, and you'll actually be able to adapt your services. So I think that was one of the key takeaways for me. And I've been hearing it from our different instructors, um, lived and living experience. Uh, getting those people into rooms where decisions are being made is also really important. Um you know, Corey and I can advocate for safe supply. It's also really important to use our privilege to make space for people who are um, accessing safe supply to be able to talk to decision makers and policymakers. Um, we can use our influence in those ways as well. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I have this kind of like recurrent mantra now that is if you're going to be making decisions about a certain group of individuals, and you're not consulting with that certain group of individuals, you are doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were setting up the process for decampment and I was looped into this big email and I, I asked this large group of people, I said, where's our, where's our lived and living experience on this panel? And their response was, well, we have a person with lived and living experience who's here, Corey. And I said, no, but the actual campers, like the people who are in the camps right now, that, Kind of lived experience mm -hmm. and they were like oh i guess we need you know like and, and it just kind of it it can't be an afterthought it has to be part of the preparation phase it has to be part of all the time you need to go back to the people who are impacted by these initiatives by these new services and ask them what's going to work and what isn't going to work the most failed programs are the ones that don't consult with the people who are impacted by those programs. They end up being a waste of resources and quite often they generate a lot of harms. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we're constantly reflecting on our own process and we make sure that we're finding ways not just to consult with, because consulting is still a form of tokenizing, but to really change the power structure so that people have an ability to change the process and to change the decisions that are being made. And, you know, there's tension there because, um, you know, we are, our services are tied to funding, which sometimes dictates the kinds of things we can offer. There's also the very real tension of our own safety and the risks that we feel comfortable to take in our working environment. And then there's the pressure of being under the authority of a public health body that tells us um, how we have to do our work. So I just want to name that tension. But I also want to say that, um, it's actually a really good opportunity, you know, for staff 
and management and clients to begin to start to talk to one another in a way that maybe you haven't done before. Um, you know, there's a difference between putting more, even posting more of these signs on the wall, these resources, and actually starting to build into your routine five minutes where you check in with your staff on a daily basis and you say simply what's working, what isn't, what's hard, what's, what do you need help with today? Um, that's the work in my mind, you know, and I've, I've done a lot of supervision and management in high stress situations. And it's the hardest work because actually taking time to connect with people and hear their stories or their challenges uh, when you've got 20 other tasks and maybe three different emergencies and some drama uh, playing out, or you have a meal to serve or, um, you know, somebody to help. It's really hard, but um, I think it's really important work and valuable. Um, so I won't hit on that yes, anymore. Doing for and doing with. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that really stands out to me in, in thinking about this um, reflectiveness is that um, it's really important to do self-care. And I don't mean, you know, self-care TM that's commercialized. I mean, um if this is a long-term thing, then we need to start building that into our daily work habits and life because otherwise we're not going to make it. And as Corey said, a lot of us are burning out. People are just burning out of being in a pandemic, period. And so when you start to burn out um, because you're overwhelmed with information and stress, then you stop being able to implement things that will keep you safe. And so I just want to also encourage you, uh, my learning in this season has been to make sure that self-care is an essential part of my job and to also support my staff and the people that I serve to um, make sure that they are doing what they can to take care of themselves so that we are refreshed and we are continually able to show up in this hard, hard work and check in with the tough people, like check in with the with the quiet stoic manager and and those folks too, um, because I can you know I've only gotten tiny glimpses at that high level decision making table, but so many of you who are at that place are working every weekend. You're working late at night. You're juggling, you know, funding precariousness, and you're funding you're you're struggling with all of these different pieces. Uh, and quite a few of those individuals don't feel comfortable reaching out because they don't want to show quote unquote weakness. Um, but check in with them because this has been, this has been far reaching and this has been impactful to everybody from frontline to upper level management. Yeah. So, uh, let's just maybe close up our conversation today by talking about PPE because it's everybody's favorite subject. And I feel like even though you were very clear, especially I love that masks graphic. I'm actually going to go back to it. Um, it's still confusing. And I just want to name that. And so is there kind of something that you're doing in your work, Corey, that helps you stay connected to the importance of PPE, but also not overwhelmed? Like, how are you handling it? Yeah, you know what? Like, I I remember the first week that we got into the hotels and we were having, uh, we set up these health huddles that we did every single morning. 
Uh, and it was all of the different outreach workers and the hotel management staff and the medical staff and everybody was coming, the overdose prevention staff, the harm reduction group, all came together to talk about like what were the biggest issues, what did we need to watch out for? And I was standing there and I noticed like there was like 20 people in a small room and they were shoulder to shoulder with each other. <laughs> yeah. Nobody was wearing a mask. And I was just like, whoa, what is happening? And so like, and, and there was no, like, there was one cleaner and the cleaning wasn't happening on a very regular basis. And I was just like, this is still like, we're still in a pandemic. And so I, I obviously, I spent that health huddle reminding everybody, like, we need to make sure we wear our masks. We need to make sure that we do this. Um, we need to make sure that cleaning is happening. Um, we talked to the hotel management and we got more cleaners brought in. Our outreach staff started to carry bleach with them so they could wash common touch surfaces as they went along. Um, and it takes regular and frequent reminders in order to get people to continue to buy into it. Uh, sometimes you end up being that annoying person that that's constantly kind of nitpicking and, and doing those things. Uh, but every group, every organization needs that person uh, in order to hold people accountable. But what I really found was most effective is just leading by example, you know? And so like, there are times like we, we would say, if you can't guarantee six feet or two meters of distancing, you have to wear a mask. And so people were weighing whether or not they should be wearing one or not. So I just started wearing one every single time I came into the hotel and people would see me wear it. And so they would go and put theirs on. And sometimes you just need to also just emulate. You need to be that person that's trying to abide to those recommendations so other people can see, okay, this isn't undoable. This isn't too much. It's something that we need to actually take seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hard. It's hard. Even, even myself, I've like, I've, I've felt a slip in the prioritization of PPE and personal precautions uh, responding to overdose. You know, like when we are telling people that you need to wear all of this PPE and these are the things that you need to be doing, but when you're actually running to an overdose to respond, it's really hard to think of all of those pieces while you're in that fight or flight response um, so also, you know, just being easy on yourself and not like, if you make a mistake, then just go back to, go back to the basics and make sure that you do it better the next time. Um, because this is a, this is a long haul thing. We're going to see all different versions of this in the future. Um, and so it's important that we know we, we also practice patience and we practice kindness with each other. Um, and, and you try to, if somebody's not following the recommendations, you try to understand first and foremost, why before you just jump onto them about what the recommendations are. Find out what the barriers are, what, if it's a lack of understanding, if it's not available, find out what the reason is first and foremost and try to work with that person. Mm -hmm. hmm. Trying to figure out how to say this <laughs> as we end here. Um, I think maybe it was you, Corey, that said it a while ago, or it could be from the reading that I've done in the, you know, I have kids and I, I think a lot about parenting. And one of the things that the phrase is, it's good enough parenting, not perfection. Um, and this idea of connection instead of perfection. And I think it applies um, to my work in the front line. And that is, we're not going to do everything perfectly. Um, it would be impossible. But because of the high level of risk and the, the sort of existential fear that comes with um, an infectious disease that we cannot treat, um, and some people die from, it could be very hard to make decisions that feel safe. But I just want to, you know, give you an encouragement that um, we're not going to do it perfectly. And sometimes if we try to do it perfectly, we actually end up doing it worse than if we just try to do our best. <laughs> and so it kind of ties into that 
thing about connecting with your clients and trying to figure out how to apply all of the guidelines practically. Um, that's an ongoing process. And, you know, once you set some rules in place and you find out they're not working, just move on, you know, try a different approach. Um, because it's better to at least be trying to implement these things than to get frustrated and, and not do them at all or do them in a way that actually creates harms. I, I keep coming back to that story I heard in another webinar about people um, standing in a lineup for food and uh, a worker who was stressed, you know, walking up and down the lineup, yelling at people to maintain social distancing. Um, nobody wins in that situation. Uh, it wasn't effective. It was stressful for the worker. It was stressful for the people waiting in line. And so we need to be sort of self-reflective enough to know that um, if we're working, if we're acting out of fear and stress, chances are we're not going to be doing a very good job of implementing the things that we need to. All right. Don't well, let that, perfection be the enemy of good. Yeah, that's exactly. Say that again. Don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Yes. Do the good that you can while you strive for perfection. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say thank you to everybody on the line and please take the time to fill out that survey. Um, check out our resources. All of the handouts and things will be up there as well. This will be a recorded session, both in audio and video format. And Corey, thanks once again for being with us today and for everything that you bring to the table. We really appreciate you. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. And for everybody on the line, Stay safe, stay calm, and take a break when you can. And thank you for continuing to show up in this hard and important work. Take care, everyone. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca and you can find COVID-19 specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.